Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey folks, welcome to Making Data Simple. I think I'm on something like week seven, week eight, recording from my home office. Because obviously, given COVID, the world isn't so simple. But thank you for listening. Today, I have Q Ree, who is the VP and Chief Health Officer of IBM and IBM Watson Health. Q has been on here, I don't know, I think over 100 episodes ago, we had Q on. And the world was quite different back then. <laughs> different priorities. I am promised, or Q promised me, the sequel is going to be better than the original today. So welcome, Q. Thank you for being on the podcast. Yeah, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> Empire Strikes Back was better, so we'll see. Yeah, I think it was better. That I like. That's my favorite. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm your father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So last time we were talking about things like uh, I went back and we were talking about the culture of health at IBM, IBM Watson's role in health. Uh, you were focused on areas health of the workplace, health of the business. We talked about I think it was one in five dollars in GDP is is on health. Uh, healthcare and one third of that, I think, is wasted. Uh, in fact, to, to be more precise, I went back and looked in, in 2018. I think the it was 3.6 trillion or $11,000 a, a person at that point in time. Uh, so, but the world has changed, like I said. And I'm going to have a little bit of fun today. It sounds like you're in a good mood, which is great because I want to go off the grid here. Here's the type of questions I'm going to go with today. And the cool thing is it's it's my podcast, so I can do what I want. And here's the first one to kind of set the tone. What the hell is going on, man? Is this like the end of days? Put some sanity into this. What the hell is going on? We're discovering it's been 102 years since the last large global pandemic in 1918, known as the Spanish flu. And we are discovering how connected we are as a society globally and how fragile we are as well. I wouldn't say it's the end of days, but it is, <laughs> it, it is an opportunity for us to reflect on this extraordinary challenge, but also the opportunity we have to be more connected and to really think about what matters. It's kind of a funny question, but it's a very serious question at the same time. How are you doing in the quarantine? You doing well? I'm doing pretty well. We've been very busy, as you can imagine. Um, folks like myself, I think... Um, our knowledge, our expertise when it comes to clinical and public health is, is very valued at this time. Personally, I reflect on myself, my own family. I, I think of Brene Brown talking about vulnerability, and this is a vulnerability moment for the world. And I think about my own family, you know, my own kids who might come in and out, <laughs> you know, who are getting homeschooled. My two girls, Ellen and Zoe, were 9 and 11. My wife working so hard to, to support them in their homeschooling and me intermittently going over there. I think about my mother, who's definitely got some risk factors and, you know, is alone in this current environment and, and trying to support her with the, the challenges that she faces and, and we face as a society. Personally, I'm doing pretty well, professionally very busy. I think IBM was made for a moment like this to help support society, our clients, our partners in this challenging moment. Does that put you, I mean, I got to believe that this is game time for you and it's, it's kind of game time for IBM. So on one hand, 
you know, a very tragic moment in, in history to some men. You know, I'm very, as I've said multiple times on this podcast, empathetic to anybody that's personally affected health-wise. In fact, I got some people that I know that are, are fairly close that are affected, and I'm very, again, empathetic and can't. My heart goes out to them. On the other hand, it's kind of like I had a buddy that uh, was in the military, and like if there was a war, you know, I, I, I like, do you welcome that? He goes, yeah, I do. Cause I've been, I've been, I'm ready to go. This is what I've been training for. And on the other hand, I'm saying, look, well, I'm not ready for that. Nobody wants this. And so I know nobody wants this, but where's your mindset? Is this man for you? Is it game time? Is this where you shine and where you use your expertise? Yes, it's definitely game time. It's definitely war time. It's definitely leveraging the best of what we have at IBM, the extraordinary people, the, the resources, the trust that we have across the globe and locally and and looking at ways that we can support this fight and this war against COVID-19. One of the best articles that I read in Morningstar was about the different projections. Now, they were really doing it from a financial perspective, but it also, I mean, it had direct correlation. And I know you don't have a crystal ball, but I'm going to ask you anyway. You know, one of their their, their projections of the bull case was 30,000 uh, deaths in the U.S., 800,000 globally. The base case was a 60% probability. The first one, I don't know if I said, was 25% probability. Base case was 60%. You know, it was around 200,000 deaths in the U.S. with 8 million globally. And then the bear case was 15% probability and it was like 700,000 deaths in the U.S. and 18 million deaths globally. Where are we at today from your perspective? Where are we heading in, the, in that whole realm of possibility? You have to reflect on April 29th, 2020. <laughs> it changes daily. I get it. Yes, it changes daily. We're learning more about this disease every day. We're learning more about how lethal it is and how it affects certain risk groups and, and how it's spread. So there's a lot we still don't know. It will likely take next fall at the earliest in 2021 uh, for an effective vaccine to be available. We do know based on its, its so-called R-naught score and how infectious it is that you need a herd immunity of perhaps 60 to 70% of the population to, um, to, to make that R-naught score go below one. We do know other coronaviruses like this, typically there's an immunity that could be conferred for two, two years, one to three years. Um, but we don't know for this virus, you know, you know, the length of immunity and how it varies with different types of populations. We do know that data analytics and the ability to leverage that to prepare, respond, predict is going to be a very important component of how we fight this disease. So could you explain that a little bit further? Explain what you were talking about in the herd scenario and the length of immunity. I presume you're saying, hey, look, we don't know if, if the immunity is indefinite or it could get a possibility of infection later. So it makes this even more risky. I mean, could you can you shed some additional light? As of today, we know it's a very potentially lethal disease for certain groups with certain risk factors elderly, people with risk factors that are related to things like cancer or HIV or heart disease, diabetes, COPD. On average, without social distancing measures, without some of the interventions we've made, that you can infect between two and three people 
you know, it's called the coronavirus because it's got a crown in there and it literally goes into your lungs to the bottom of your lungs and just hangs on and replicates and creates this horrible infection, this horrible pneumonia that leads many people to need an ICU bed, a ventilator, a breathing tube to help them breathe. We often focus on the physical curve related to the cases and hospitalizations and deaths, but we have to recognize the multiple other curves that are about to come or that are starting to come. Avoidance of chronic disease management, people's chronic diseases like diabetes, like hypertension, like heart failure, like COPD and asthma, depression are getting worse. There's another curve as it relates to mental health and the burnout, especially for our frontline workers, those soldiers out in the field, the nurses, the doctors, the delivery folks, you know, the challenges that they're facing as they confront this disease head on. And then there's an economic curve in terms of the devastation that this virus is making from an economic perspective, in terms of jobs, unemployment, and thinking about, you know, things like food insecurity and housing. Are you going to be able to pay the rent? There's so much that's going on during this pandemic that we have to react to, but also prepare for. Yeah, to your point, the person that I'm familiar with is a colleague's daughter. She's a frontline worker and uh, has double pneumonia. And I've learned a lot from her going through this. She's coming out of it, thankfully. She has what's called, and again, I'm learning more as we go. I think everybody is, but a cytokine storm. Yeah, cytokine storm. How, how do you pronounce that? Uh, cytokine. 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 Cytokine storm, where all I know, and you can talk more about it, but uh, it multiplies so fast within your lungs, it destroys the lining of the lungs because it essentially blows up the cell. As you reference the cytokine storm, which is basically this systemic, broad, inflammatory response that the whole body reacts to this infection with. These are all such frightening aspects of a new virus and its impact on human life, on human families and, and communities. I've got many colleagues who are out on the front lines, people I went to med school with and did residency, and there's extraordinary uh, stories of courage, of resilience, of collaboration, of teamwork. To me, it's also the best of humanity that we're seeing at this moment. Absolutely. Totally agree with that. But could this not have been predicted? I mean, hell, Bill Gates, they got him on Netflix showing him that he predicted this. We've got in many labs, you know, they've been studying Corona for some time. You know, how does this get out of control before, you know, with all the technology we have today? We clearly had other examples, SARS, MERS, as I mentioned, the Spanish flu. If you think about the stages of pandemic, there's preparedness, there's response, and there's recovery. Many people were talking about the potential and the impact. Many governments, many scientists, many NGOs like the Gates Foundation. And I remember H1N1. And I also remember a lot of our preparedness plans. But it is one of those experiences where you don't, you know, unless you're 120 years old and you were there for the original Spanish flu, it's one of those things it's hard to fully prepare for. So we're now in the response stage and, and, and we've got a lot of work to do. How do they know this one is going to be complementary to what we would say is the, the Spanish flu versus something like SARS? Because SARS, to my knowledge, the um, R-naught was much higher. I think MERS was too. Was it not? 
I know the R naught for like the flu, the the influenza is is generally one point two. The R naughts of things like mumps, measles is much higher, like seventeen or eighteen. But when you have unvaccinated people, so the R naught talks about how quickly something can spread. We've got a new novel infection that's spreading in some cases we know can last for many hours and potentially even days on surfaces and also has the capability of infecting people in what we would call an, a, a pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic phase. There's estimates that a large percentage of the infections come from people who have no symptoms. It's going to require us to work together to be collaborative, to bring different types of capabilities together from a data and analytics perspective, but different types of expertise together. Because you can imagine right now we're having this big debate about health and economy. This is having a huge effect on the economy and how we bring people back to work, how we do it safely is really a balancing act. It's a polarizing issue as well. There's just so many different levers like you said, I think, you know, I think I said on a previous podcast, it's just my belief that in five to 10 years, they're going to look back, but it may not take near that long and tell us how crazy we are one way or another. This is probably going to be dissected to the nth degree, as it probably should be, because there's economics. We got like some areas that are hit extremely hard, like New York. And then there's other areas where the hospitals are empty and they've got to furlough the hospital workers. And then they're worried about other issues like, uh, heart problems or otherwise where people won't go in when they need to go in and get help. Is there anything you can talk to in terms of your medical perspective on what is some of the greatest learnings you've already seen? One thing from a data perspective, a big data perspective I want to highlight is the insights that you get in terms of what a policymaker, a government official, a patient or a citizen needs to react to. You have to recognize those insights are only as good as the data you input. So as we look at this, as you look at websites and you look at how we've done an extraordinary job with IBM and the Weather Channel looking at the most downloaded consumer weather app in the world and scraping data from health departments. There's 2,800 health departments, for example, in the U.S. The piece I want to highlight is that we've got significant global challenges as it relates to something like testing. Uh, We know, for example, with examples we had in Santa Clara and L.A. County where they did widespread testing, that the number of reported cases actually was like one in uh, like 80 or nearly 100 times more actual cases in the community. So the piece I want to highlight to the listeners is it's what I've learned is we're, we're very fragile as a society based on our infrastructure, based on our public health our primary care, you know, our broader systems. This virus is highlighting some of those gaps and the opportunities we have to now hopefully address them and close them. It'd be great if we can get out of the response and the recovery much less than, you know, some of the predictions I started with and then accelerate technology. It's great, by the way, when I can corner a physician like yourself that has the expertise health information technology, because you know I'm going to ask all these kind of questions. But as I started the podcast, you're the VP and Chief uh, Health Officer uh, at IBM and and Watson Health. A couple of questions I have here. Uh, You talked about some of the sources we're getting the data. We're not as fast as we could be 
relative some of the privacy that we have around that data. And I got to believe that other countries, for example, have maybe have a leg up here, uh, maybe even a country like China that doesn't have the restrictions on, on PHI that we would have here. On, on the one hand, you know, we want our privacy. I want my privacy. On the other hand, that's essentially slowing down some of the research, is it not? So there's nothing more important than privacy and security when it comes to data, especially in the areas of health and healthcare. I can't underemphasize what I would call the role of trust. This is where I highlight where IBM, in my view, was made for this moment because we are so trusted with so many clients, governments, life science companies, hospital systems. But as you stated, when you go and recognize the issues of privacy and security and, and make sure those are foundational. There is a new paradigm that could, and I believe should evolve, related to data. And where you add, in addition to data privacy and security and trust, you can move to a philosophy around data philanthropy. I think COVID-19 highlights this very starkly. Uh, if you give the example of recovered patients from COVID-19 and the fact that their convalescent plasma, the antibodies in their blood could be used to help in their community up to four people who are in a hospital at the end stages of life on a ventilator. Think about those family members and the fact that there's no treatment available that's effective right now. Your data is yours, but it could be used to help doctors, nurses, and even other patients address this new disease. In the same way that people gift their blood in a blood donation or gift their organs when they die, there is an opportunity here to think about the real world evidence around COVID-19 and how people could gift that data to help us find new opportunities to treat these patients who, who are in the hospital and, and these doctors who are on the front lines of taking care of patients for a disease that they've never confronted before. You know, being a data guy, it really occurs to me that this is a moment that reiterates the importance in data. We, we joke around that uh, data is the new oil. I could see somebody uh, passing away and saying, here's my data, go study it. Anything that I missed, are there any questions that aren't being asked that should be? We need to be moving to understand this moment this vulnerability moment and how we need to think about the role and impact of these other waves that are yet to come. So you've got the physical kind of COVID-19 harm wave or curves that are related to hospitalizations, to, to deaths, but you've got this other wave, which really worries me around the management of chronic diseases. We know people are suffering in terms of their diabetes, their heart disease, we know they're having many strokes and many heart attacks and not necessarily going to the emergency room. We've got some catch up to do as it relates to the curve of the management of chronic diseases and how we're going to reconnect to all these populations that need care, but also are the lifeline of these hospitals. I mean, people don't recognize this, but hospitals typically only have a margin of maybe one to 5%. They only have savings maybe built up for 60 to 90 days, many hospitals. Um, so while there's five to 6,000 hospitals in the US, for example, many of these hospitals don't have the economic strength 
to handle this crisis long term from an economic perspective. I've got doctor friends and nurses who are taking 20 to 30 percent pay cuts, some of them being furloughed. We have to be very cognizant of this chronic disease wave and how managing it will actually reinvigorate and reinvest in those hospitals that are now in a lot of trouble, not only because they're on the front lines of this war, but because their supply lines and chains are being cut. The third one is mental health and the burnout issues. In the same way we think about a war and post-traumatic stress, we have to think about that as it relates to our workforce and our front lines and, and taking care of them and, and helping support their resiliency. Um, helping address their compassion fatigue, their vicarious traumatization. There was that a doctor who recently committed suicide. We have to be thinking about how we support our frontline workers, those soldiers, and supporting their mental health, their well-being. That issue of mental health is broader than just those front lines. It's, it's all of us in this time of isolation where we're really adapting to a new normal. So that second curve of mental health and burnout is, is, is another one. And the third curve of economic devastation and recovery is, is also incredibly important and in how we address that in a very thoughtful and proactive way. You can see the lines, the car lines for food banks as people are losing their jobs and how challenging that must be for families. I feel very fortunate, as I said, humble and grateful for the fact that I have a role that lets me work from home right now and that also you know, gives me reassurance that I can pay the bills and that I can also provide for my family. But many people in our country and across the globe are not able to do that. So how are we going to address that economic recovery that's so foundational? Bring all these pieces together so we're more prepared for the next pandemic, the waves of chronic disease management, the issues as it relates to mental health and resiliency, and the issues as it relates to economic strength. No, that's fantastic. Amen to all of that. Did you say the vaccine next fall? Yes. The estimates are likely 12 to 18 months. Uh, 18 months is probably more likely, but yes, next fall. What is the possibility within the next month or two, we start the economy, we get going again, and then come fall, we have to go back into quarantine? You think that's a possibility? If you look at the 1918 Spanish flu, there were multiple curves. It wasn't just one. As I mentioned, there are other curves, chronic disease curve, mental health curve, economic curve. The winter particularly will be very challenging for us because you'll have both influenza and this coronavirus. There's going to be some ups and downs as we head forward. Correct. And that's why it's so important during this period to you know, care for self, family and community and adapt to this new pseudo normal and the inevitable new normal that'll come in perhaps around 18 months. Where can folks, uh, listeners go to learn more about what you're working on in our position on this? I, ours being IBM. Yes. So if you if you go to IBM.com and under the coronavirus section, there's one there. You can learn more about the work we're doing as it relates to accelerated discovery, trusted information, and resiliency and adaptation. And you can also learn more about the big ideas and the big efforts we are providing, supporting our clients and partners as they adjust to this new normal. You're awesome, man. 
Thank you for being here. You care if you can you spend three more minutes on a quick game? I always like to end with some fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's fine. No, no, it's good. I, I, let All me, right, let me take a shot before I start. Okay, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> we talked earlier about uh, this being a uh, a bar talk, and I think it it, it kind of was. So uh, get your shot. Let, let's let's get it. In. <laughs> no, <laughs> I do think there's more alcoholism happening <laughs> during this crisis. <laughs> <laughs> And as I mentioned, the 60 proof is the, uh, the criteria. So, well, okay. you know what, you know, you, you, all this being said, I think bourbon's going to help me. <laughs> okay. The more bourbon I drink, I think it kills everything. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. So we're going to do, would you rather, you got to pick one side or the other. I'm going to give you a couple of choices and you got to pick, pick one. And, you know, I'll start off easy and then get a little bit harder. All right, a human doctor without benefit of computer or an AI doctor? No human. A human doctor. <laughs> but obviously my preference is a human doctor with the computer because that would all right. that's ultimately I figured it was, but that's all right. All right. So human doc will you ever go full AI doctor ever? I like Star Trek when they had that holographic <laughs> doctor, but I think we're still a few uh, a few centuries away from that. All right. So not even close. Well, not even All right. Especially in places that are under-resourced. I, I do think there's a unique dynamic where if you've got no doctor and this is the only choice you have, you've got to consider it. There's something about humans, obviously, in the connection and what you can't see in the data and the focus of what a doctor-patient relationship is fundamentally about. It's about that trust. What you don't necessarily see in the data that's really essential that's a good point, yeah. Eating right or exercise? You have to choose one. Eating right. You say that and it's like obvious, but I think I know a lot of a lot of friends that exercise so they can eat whatever the hell they want. You yeah. know how long it takes to burn off like a Snickers bar? It like takes like an hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on how if it's worth it to you, go run for an hour or two, then you can have that Snickers. <laughs> yeah, but that actually I, I think the statistic is around 90, 90 percent of like weight loss and, and health, if you think about it, could really be around eating right. Because your ability to eat those calories and how long it takes to burn it is so significant. Eating is, a it, there's a lot of addictions connected to eating. We know that sugar, fat, salt, caffeine are all addictive. And in many parts of our food industry, that's, that's what they use to get people to eat more. And it's hard to burn off. All right. So what about sleep or exercise? Sleep. That's always a hard one for me because I'm trying to get up in the morning. Sometimes I stay up late at night and I'm thinking, well, then I can't exercise. But so you're saying, hey, always prioritize the sleep. Yes. Sleep is definitely known to be more important for innovation and for preventing things like dementia and other chronic diseases. I'm not saying exercise isn't important. It's still very important. I try to exercise about an hour a day, and then I try to sleep at least seven hours a day. Uh, look, three things I've learned over the course of my lifetime that I stick with is drinking enough water, uh, getting enough sleep, and exercising. Those are the three pillars. I'm with, I, and it took me, look, you think that's obvious, but now I live by it religiously. Uh, but anyway, moving on, on-prem or cloud? Now, the reason I ask that is because I think of on-prem, maybe more privacy and then maybe the cloud benefit of the vast uh, big data world we have out there. Cloud. Best quarantine activity, movies or baking? Baking. Really? 
Somebody must have known something about you for that question. All right, baking. All right. Mask and going out or no mask and staying home? Mask and going out. What if I go to the lake this weekend? Does that count? Uh, there's only going to be seven, six, seven people there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be drinking bourbon. <laughs> so, that, so I'm going to be good all the way around, I think. You are good. You're good. Right. <laughs> Music or food to cure the quarantine blues? Music. And I've been listening to a lot of 80s music. That's what they said. I was doing a research and they said the most downloadable music is like 60s and 70s right now. And in, in, in like early 80s. Must be all the older people at home now with nothing to do. I don't know. <laughs> Economy or health? Both. You think you can do both? I do believe we can do both. I believe we can and will do both. We must do both. I think so, too. I worry about the economy because that'll have other implications that will directly be related to health. All right. I'm done. Thank you for being on here again. Thank you for putting up with me. Dr. Reed, thank you so much for being here. Great information. You're the most knowledgeable doctor I know. I need to go to you with all my ailments. So thank you for being here. Thank you, Al. Thank you so much. And to your listeners, thanks so much for your interest in taking care of yourself, your families, your friends, and each other. Thanks. Yes, thank you. Please give us feedback wherever you're listening to us. And you can always reach us at almartintalksdata at gmail.com. Until then, talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.